Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. So, welcome, uh, Nick Catalano. How are you doing? Great, Jason. Good. Great to be with you here this morning. Oh, it's, an, it's really an honor. We've been trying to set this up for <laughs> some time, and we're finally doing it. I'm happy about that. The amazing, the amazing post-millennium madness, or whatever you want to call it. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Post-COVID craziness, yeah, whatever. Boy, boy, it's crazy, so, really. Nick Nicholas Catalano, um, you're many things. I wanted to just open just a little bit about you. You know, you've you've written books, um, you've taught at universities, um, you know, um, musician. I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about yourself to kind of introduce our listeners. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll make it quick. Uh, born and raised here in New York City all my life, uh, and uh, a child musician uh age five six at juilliard at seven they have a program they have a program at juilliard they still have it on saturdays for gifted kids anyway i did that uh started to play and uh basically together with several uh people my own age who got into the musicians union here in new york by the time i was 11 and i was playing a lot all over the place uh i'm very interested in jazz um basically because of teachers and people at Juilliard uh so you that that was a big a big deal I was almost not even thinking of going to college because I wanted to play so badly but uh the jazz world as you know is uh, fraught with all sorts of peril uh mm-hmm. and uh I decided well I don't think I'm gonna do this I'll go to college and I've never regretted that decision that's for sure can can so, I ask you what your instrument is? What would you? Yeah, the re- re- reeds, reeds. You know the cl- saxophone. clarinet. Yeah, all the saxes, mostly tenor these days. I still play a little bit and uh, clarinet, flute. You know that the reeds, okay. the reed majors. Okay, so that was the music side. My father, my father is a musician. I, I believe we talked about this um, uh-huh. months ago. Yeah, he plays a very unusual instrument the french horn you know uh i love i love that instrument i love that instrument i always had a a thing for the french horn what can i say really <laughs> okay it's got a great sound okay um the objective of this podcast is to to talk about comedy not music but i may, maybe in the future we could do one on music and i know you've written a book about is it clifford brown is that right? Yeah, it's a biography of Clifford Brown, who was a great bebop trumpeter in the 50s. Uh, not that well known, but the best of all of them. And because of my association as a kid with this whole world, uh, I, I got to, by 14 and 15, I got to be a big apostle. Uh, very briefly, uh, one night, a bunch of us were looking for jazz places to sit in after our normal gigs. And Max Roach was doing a thing at the Cafe Bohemia. Wow. Short, short, long, we sat in a couple of tunes. Max was great. And then he said, I'd like you to meet my new associate, 
uh, who is this new trumpeter whose name is Clifford Brown. We'd never heard of him. And we didn't know who he was. This is 1955, okay? Wow. Uh, and, uh, and, and we started to play, and my friend Herbie, when we, when we left, he said, Nick, let's go. Let's walk along the river. I want to throw my horn in a river. I'll never be able to play like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing I mean, can destroy your confidence like hearing someone yeah. who can really do it, right? Well, I mean, we, we hear so many trumpeters, but I mean, when, when you heard this guy, you, you couldn't believe it. It was just, uh, it was superlatives all the way around. And of course, yeah. uh, years later, I started writing about jazz for all the magazines. Uh, quite prominently in the late 80s and early 90s. And Oxford called and said, listen, Ned, we read your stuff. We'd love you to do a book. I said, not so sure. I said, but if I were going to do a bio, it, it would only be Clifford Brown. So I did it. Okay. Published in, 19, in 2000. Screenplay, uh, interest with HBO been going on and all forever since. Wow. And now we're, okay. we're coming to a place now where they've got a producer uh, and don't uh, you know the, 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 these things take forever, and that's what's happening. Okay, so so it's going to be a mini series on on HBO. Is that no, right? no, it won't be a series. It'll just be what they call hopefully just called they call it now a docudrama. There's all sorts of different appellations mm -hmm. for these different kinds of television. Yeah. But, but they have actors the, who they base it on real right. They do. They have actors right. plus yeah. the documentary uh, thing. I've done a few of them myself, actually. Okay. Uh, I've been producing a, a different kinds of TV things for all sorts of reasons for years and years. I've done uh, a lot of documentary stuff for Discovery. I did back in the 90s on different countries and things. So as a producer, that word is such an abused word, but but really right, in a right, sense, yeah. <laughs> it, it really describes what I've done in, in, in live music, uh, on television, uh, and concerts. Uh, different kinds of uh, programming, things like that. I, I, I've been a producer. <laughs> you really uh, have done, you really have been a producer. I, I've heard that, that when you see, a lot of times they'll use big name actors who are in the movie or in the show. Right. Co-produced by, you know, Nicolas Cage or whatever. And it's just, right. they don't really do anything. They're just, they that's just, right. it's like it helps sell the thing or something. That's, right? a, that's exactly, that's exactly right. right. Okay, um, boy, that's that's. Um, first of all, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. That sounds really, really cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is um, a couple of things. One is uh, I played drums because uh, uh -huh. I was a musician, so he, he wanted me to do music, of course. And I, I like music, obviously, and I love music now. So I played drums. So you know, as an adult, I learned who Max Roach was, and I've just you know watching some videos of him playing. It's just like my God. So. You got to see him live. That must, like, as a drummer, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> that must have been something just hearing him. Well, I don't know. Well, ju just to develop that a little bit, as soon as I got this contract uh, back in the 90s, I went immediately to Max. I had seen him and reviewed him a few times before. I like to say that I'm, I guess, basically friendly with all these people here in New York because there's not many jazz writers. And so everybody kind of knows you anyway. Uh, Max was a doll. He was really terrific. Um, I brought my daughter in one particular nice. session. Susan had her own jazz show on KCR here in New York, which is affiliated with Columbia University. She's a big jazzer. Anyway, we were there one day. I got this thing. He said, Nick, this is great. And you're not going to believe what happened. I said, what happened? He said, well, 100 years ago, when we were playing in Detroit, Soupy Sales. Do you know who that is? I haven't heard of that name, no. Big oh, jazz okay. guy. 
Soupy, as in S-O-U-P-Y sales, S-A-L-E-S, was a major, major uh, uh, host, uh, MC, sort of on early television. Okay. Uh, he was he was quite popular, uh, and 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 guested on uh, lots of different shows, et cetera, et cetera. His uh, his modus operandi was uh, was sounds very silly, but uh, at the end of the show, uh, uh, people would be getting pies in their face. Uh, th- th- this was his trademark, and of course, it's about as universal an action as there is. So people yeah. enjoyed it. Anyway, segue. Uh, he asked Clifford to go on the show. Clifford went on the show. They taped it. And the tape had arrived at Max's house. This is now 1995, 40 years later, because oh, Soupy had kept. Wow. And and that's the day we we opened it. We saw it. And it's the only television we have, we have of Clifford. Wow. So it was a, wow. that's how this all started back at Max's apartment. Uh, Max went to boys high school uh, uh, adjacent to a school that I went to here in Brooklyn. He was a track star. We've talked Good. about a million, million things through the years. And of course, as a drummer, what can I tell you? You, 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 you know what what the, what there is there to see. I mean, this is a guy who uh, played played on played with Charlie Parker. I mean, he started it all here. Yeah, York. he's the original gangster there. I mean, mean, you know, Mitten's was, Playhouse. Uh, these guys were all hanging out, and, uh, and he, he I, is and, so uh, incredible. Like, I, you know, he he could sit at a table and beat it with his hands. Oh yeah, and it would I'm sound sure. utterly amazing, you know. There's, I saw a video of him once um, playing a just the hi hat for a bit. It's about five minutes or some few minutes, and it's just incredible. It's just he makes it do like like it's like dozens of different sounds and colors. Well, and different, it's just incredible what he can do just with a hi hat. It's like amazing. Uh, well, the thing that he really, I guess, uh, he's known for a million things, but what he probably pioneered uh, that really attracted the writers and so on was the fact that he was able to, to take jazz solos on the drums that had melodic and even harmonic dimensions to them. So there's also, there's all sorts of stuff going on there, not just rhythm. And, and, and that, that, that was a big deal. And uh, entre nous, make melody and harmony from drums. That's right. That's right. That's right. It sort of seems and, impossible and, on its face, but you could do it, right? Is that? Yeah, and and if you ever get a chance to hear their music together, Clifford Brown and Max, this the several albums that they made together, you'll hear this. I mean, it's wild. It's it's really amazing. Plus, uh, <clears throat> there's there's Richie Powell on on the uh, Bud Powell's piano on on the uh, on the. Uh, Bud Powell's brother on the piano, oh, my goodness, and uh, Sonny Rollins in the last. Uh, oh wow! Year. Yeah, so and these guys all helped me. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> they became friends. What can okay. I say? Yeah, they thing. were all contemporaneous at that time, and you were around. It, okay, right. It was all that right. Kind of- yeah, that like okay. Well, an idea is kind of popping into my head. I mean, because my father, I've wanted to have my father on uh, on the podcast to do, and I don't know, maybe have him on, have you on. You guys could compare jazz notes. You sound like you're about the same age. I don't know. That's uh-huh. very potential. Who knows? You know, he sure. Would, why not? Yeah, something. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But just it occurred to me that that might be interesting. He did most of his. I'm here in Montreal, but uh, where I am. But he did most of his career in Toronto with uh, the jazz scene and most and a lot of classical. In fact, he was classically trained. So, oh boy! Yeah, so he has sort of he he got into jazz. I think a little. 
later he uh he he was on a pickup as a young man um oh god i'm blanking on that famous band leader dizzy gillespie no who's the he was a band leader was oh, dizzy gillespie. Was, yeah, no dizzy. it was a um oh god it was a guy he went to a really prominent school in washington dc for it was a black school um Oh God! How Howard University probably. It was a high school, but I'm um, blanking on his name. And he and he was a band leader, so he was still around in the '70s. Big bands. Uh huh. Uh, anyway, I feel well, it'll come to me later, no doubt after we stop recording. But so um, I believe um, his earlier um, contact with jazz, but he did mostly classical back in those days. So, okay. Um. So we could. Um. In in that context, then again, I'm just sort of trying to expand things for you. <clears throat> As a producer here in New York, I had two main avenues. I was vice president of uh, uh, performing arts at the universe, at Pace University, which meant that I had a season. We have several campuses, a season of all of the arts, opera, ballet, jazz, comedy, you name it. So I did all of that wow. for many years. And in connection with that, <clears throat> I also had a little production company of my own, which I produced independently. And I did lots of jazz. Uh, and okay. other things wow. by myself. So uh, all those band leaders, uh, you name them, I had them all and I knew them all. Uh, from Lionel Hampton, Benny Goodman, I have, I have stuff, uh, oh my goodness, Harry James. I did all these bands many, many times uh, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Wow. So that, that in a sense, uh, amplifies this whole jazz subject that we're talking about right now. Right. Great. Okay. Um, so that's something we could we could do at another time. You, you've done so many interesting things, uh, but today we settled on on comedy, and it's going right. to be a specific thing, uh, you know, focus on New York and comedy, because it, it seems like that city, you're a New Yorker for one thing, but it seems like New York holds a special place, in the, at least in the Anglosphere, let's say, for comedy. I think that's fair to say. Um, there's a whole, there's a whole litany. You stop me when you when you want to stop me because I've done this so many times that I, I I will stop myself. I won't talk too long. But as a kid, I played up in the mountains and in the mountains here in New York and so on. That skills, yes, right. And so and so I I, I I certainly saw a lot of those early stand-up comics, the Henny Youngmans, the uh, oh wow, yeah, I, I saw all of that stuff as a kid. <clears throat> now in '73. Yeah. I became, uh, I took this job at Pace. Uh, I was a professor and, and took this job. The president asked me to be vice president for performing arts. And in 73, I went to Bud Friedman at the improv uh, because my friend was playing there. And I said, Bud, I'd like to. And he said, sure, go ahead. And I started producing live comedy shows at all of the campuses. We have five campuses at Pace. Wow. So I did lots of shows. Uh, through the years, and this went on for 25 years. Wow, okay. So uh, it's hard for anybody to name a comic that not only do I not know, but I'm usually pretty close to. Okay. Uh, so wow. it's 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 really strange. But so this true. is this was sort of like, I mean, is this connected? I've heard of this thing called Catch a Rising Star. Is it kind of like for young? That's how Jerry it's, Seinfeld broke, apparently. Well, in my book, uh, I you really should go through if you can see if you can skim through New York nights okay. because that will uh, tell you all about this. Yes. Catch a rising star. I was, I was at principally, I was there after I did the improv, but I did them both together. 
Okay. Uh, be because, uh, you know, they were both uh, comics were appearing at both places. There were other clubs, but those owners, Rick Newman at Catch a Rising Star and Bud, helped me a lot, welcomed me, and it became a big deal because they, I was the first person to pay these people. Okay, nice. They're going to love you, right? Actually yes. getting getting money for it. Um, that's actually, just before I move on, that was something I wanted to ask you about, just a kind of a basic question. Um, what, you know, if we had to define what comedy is, um, it's obviously making people laugh. And I also thought, is it something to do with monetization? Like, like when we think about comedy as a profession, it's, Making oh people laugh and also actually, you know, enough that people will pay for it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, just as to like a definition of the word. Well, you know. actually, to be more helpful, since your 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 question is is uh, targeted and it's deep. Uh, again, uh, we're doing the podcast now, but there are, there's three chapters on what I call uh, observation comedy in the New York Knights book. OK, and it it starts with when I first started to produce this stuff in 73, they were young new comics that were out. And what they were doing is not telling jokes, quote unquote, but they were basically using homespun stories of their lives and references and so on of everyday activities to create the comedy. This got to be known sort of uh, informally as observation comedy here in New York. At the very beginning, who did I produce? Robert Klein, Freddie Prinz, uh, oh my goodness gracious, uh, all of the Catskill comics, uh, uh, I can't even think of names now, uh, but you, you name them. And then uh, very shortly after that came these new people in the first phase, which included Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Maher, oh. Larry David, uh, you name and These are all good friends now, incidentally. Oh, uh, it's, I, I named these three big guys because I've been... I've been hanging with them for all these years. But anyway, cool. uh, that's what's been going on. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it seems like Jerry Seinfeld is most associated with the observational comedy thing. Right? Well, he, he's pretty much the best one. He, he, yeah. pioneered, he pioneered a lot of them. And when I started to do this and people knew I was producing comedy, I would get calls. Hey, Nick, can you send us a comic for such and such a thing? But can you send somebody who doesn't say fuck? Well, guess what? <laughs> Jerry was the only one. That's and right. Still, right. Clean. And, he, uh, and, and, and he was extraordinarily funny and brilliant. And he still writes two or three, two or three days a week. Uh, it's, I, say, I see him a lot. Uh, I, I have a house in East Hampton, and so does yeah. he. And so you guys. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. He seems to have an incredible work ethic. Uh, from what I can exactly. Seinfeld, right. He's, I told him stories years ago when he was a kid. Uh, Neil Simon also had a place out in East Hampton and Neil was on the front porch. And every time he drove by, you could see Neil uh, uh, back in the late fifties and sixties, Neil writing his place on the porch out in East Hampton. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, in other words, this, this was a change that you observed. It was in the seventies where, yeah, and it was true. It was, like in the older comics, like you say, you mentioned Henny Youngman, they would, they would. I remember hearing Gary Shandling talk about this. That they would basically just do joke after joke after joke that you could find in a joke book, and then the drummer, you know, put it right, like with each joke. Well, this was this right? was the, certainly this was certainly the tradition of stand up at places at a place like Catskills, which was, of course, one of the oldest ones, of course. And then you can get into, and I've gotten into in 
pieces that I've written in my books. I've gotten into pieces, uh, into things that go back as far as Commedia dell'arte. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I've really? done a lot of research right. and a lot of work in comedy. Uh, my majors at graduate school were, were Shakespeare and classical Greek, and I've been teaching that stuff all my life. So, uh, so that's so that's interesting because that like that made me think that the roots of just getting to the the you know this what we're talking about here New York and comedy. So you've got a very large Jewish community. Many of the names you mentioned earlier were Jewish. The Catskills is obviously uh, you know so, uh, that was very a much Jewish thing, yes. right? It was, oh, yeah. like, the, yes, it was yes, the other places were restricted or something. I'm not sure. Do you know anything about that? Well. Right? Uh, uh, Let's put it this way. Uh, in many places, uh, I mean, Jewish people were discriminated against. I was as a young as a young musician in the 50s. I played in Miami a lot and played at hotels where Jews were not allowed. Wow. That's how far back I go. That's amazing. That's well, it's amazing to think in, in a person, a person alive today can remember no Jews allowed. I mean, it's it's really incredible. Uh, but got, the Catskills were, they were specific vacation places, you know, hotels, and it was mostly wealthy Jews from New York City because it was fairly close to New York, as I understand it, right? Yeah, they had what they called bungalow colonies. And and this was basically for people that didn't have means, uh, you know, that, that wanted to take a little vacation and everybody was up there, everybody knew everybody and so on. And so it was modest, actually. But uh, God bless the Jewish people. Uh, in order to have any kind of relaxation, you got to have a show of some kind. Right. That's what right. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's kind of what I was wondering about because that you know, so that's a Jewish thing, the Catskills Mountains, and then you've got a lot of entertainers in you know in the United States are, are Jewish, but you've got a very long history of that in Central Europe, as I understand it as well. Um, oh, sure. oh, sure. Uh, and so on, musicians and and you know actors and so on being Jewish. I'm not sure. So it sounds like it. Trying it just basically some of the immigrants and their descendants just kind of picked up on that in the United States. Is that one way to characterize it? I, I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on what you said about six years ago. I was in a film. A guy did a film here in New York. Very good. It's a good film. It's called They Died Before 40. It's a, it's a full-length uh, documentary film. And uh, he asked me to be in it to do a piece on Hunk on, on Clifford Brown, a 10-minute thing, whatever it was. So I did it. And uh, when it was finished, he did well. He won some prizes in different festivals. And, oh, my God. Each year for the last 40 years, I've been teaching a classical seminar in Greece, taking my students from Pace over to Greece for two weeks, uh, um, cruising around the Greek islands, uh, teaching. It's, uh, that's another oh, story. Sounds great. <laughs> that's been going on for 40 years. Anyway, so uh, he said to me, Nikki, you're going to be in Europe. I said, yeah, I'm always in Europe doing a million things, plus playing and even doing jazz things over there. Right, right. So he said, Nick, there's a festival, uh, there's a million festivals. Uh, if you would, if you want to hit a couple of them just to, you know, represent the film and, you know, sign some books, whatever the heck it is. I, so I said, fine. So I started off because nobody was doing Warsaw. I started off in Warsaw ah. and went down the slot. There's only one major highway in, 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 uh, in oh. Eastern Europe. So you go from, uh, I don't know if you've done it, but you go from, you know, uh, Warsaw down to Krakow and over to Vienna, Budapest, Prague, uh, all those cities. So I did them. And it was pretty amazing because 
he had done well with the film. And in Poland, I got hooked. I did a whole big piece on the Holocaust and I got hooked on what was going on in Poland in the 20s, in between the wars. And there was this huge, monstrous, monstrous cultural uh, renaissance that went on in Poland in the 20s. Uh, since you mentioned it, you, you might want to check it out one of these days. Uh, and if you ever do want to reference it, uh, we can talk for hours about it. It's, a, it's truly amazing. This film. This is, no, this is, just, this is just Polish culture in between World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. when the when the, when the country really became free for the first time, when it wasn't in the grasp of the Russians or the Germans, so it's a, a quite a story. Do you have Polish blood? Is that why we're talking? No, about no, I, I don't. I just um, my grandfather was Jewish, uh, British, but uh, immigrant here to, to to Canada to Montreal. Um, of Eastern European origin, but I don't have any, I, you know, I, I don't have any um, Polish heritage, but it does strike me that um, that there's something there when you mentioned the 20s, as I understand it, before the Holocaust, I mean, Poland was probably one of the largest Jewish populations. There were like 3 million Jews in Poland, right? Yeah, so it strikes me that part of that Renaissance must have been the presence of uh, that Jewish community. I don't and and, and there's no, and there's not and there's none there now. Which yeah, is no, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you if you go there, yeah. you start to get crazy as soon as you get on the street. Uh, yeah, and and in America, let's cut over to America. Of course, the ancestries of some of the stand-up stuff, things like vaudeville, and and even if you go further back, uh, you know about uh, uh, lamp. Uh, you know, oh my God, I can't think of words because I'm too old these days. Uh, <laughs> no worries. The, uh, Stuff where black people, uh, white people, put on black, which was blackface. Black. Yes, blackface. blackface. Uh, Al Jolson, and, that kind of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that and that whole area. There's a name for it. I'm not thinking of it. Anyway, vaudeville. That all of this other stuff goes back. And it's the connections. Europe. Some of the connections are amazing. H- example: You're a drummer, Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich is a New York kid. Okay, his parents were in vaudeville. Wow. And they made the, the vaudeville circuit. They went to the Orpheum circuit and all these different places in the 20s and 30s. And Buddy was a, was the oldest of two kids. And they took him with with him because that's what they did for a living. Right, right. And and here's the story. It's in it's in the book. Uh, Mel Torme wrote the book. Uh, about 25 people saw this happen. Uh, this is a child. He's on the stage in uh, Indiana. They're rehearsing for whatever show that they were doing. And this child is crawling. He's not, he can't walk yet. He's like 11 or 10 or 11 months old. And he's crawling around on the stage. And the the pit band is below the stage and the performers are up. So everybody's up there. And this child, this child grabs a drumstick and starts beating time on a cymbal. And he's beating the exact time of the piece. Wow. (laughs) And then, and, and, and everybody stops in the theater. You can imagine what this must have been like. And somebody said, change the rhythm. And they changed it. And he started to go with them like that. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes, the producer comes out and he says to the parents, forget about your act. You have a new act. <laughs> and the new act was Traps, T-R-A-P-S, Traps the Drum Wonder. And that's how Buddy uh-huh. Rich started his life. At the age of two. Correct. So he was literally, that's amazing. So he was literally performing when he before he could even remember. Right. That's right. It's that's wow. What an incredible story. That's so I cool. Did, 
I did several documentaries for Buddy here in uh, New York and also in, in England. Uh, Buddy was a very difficult person to, to work with. He liked me a lot. Uh, and so uh, that made it easier. But that band, in the again, this is jazz now. This is mainstream jazz. But that band in the 70s and the 80s, which is when I did a lot of producing with them, was simply beyond. If you ever have a chance to look at them in YouTube or whatever, I mean, just, just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah, Buddy Rich. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld was talking about um, how sometimes he, after the show or something, he would sort of rage at his band just for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes of just pure. And he, you know, he would say these, he would say these crazy things that they actually integrated into the show. A couple of, a couple of the episodes of Seinfeld, some of the things he would say were sort of comedic in a way where they were so absurd, you know, All right, here's take you outside and show you what it's like, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing that you need to do. You can get it any place. Uh, I guess it was about 1972. They're on the bus. They're going one nighters all over the place. And he starts to get crazy. And the guys in the back of the band, on the back of the bus, start taping him. Yeah. This tape became the most popular thing in jazz <laughs> because it's Buddy screaming, screaming at everybody, cursing, screaming, yelling, et cetera. And everybody's chuckling and laughing because he's so out of control. And uh, he's making he's making all of these allusions. In, in point of fact, any musician that you've ever met is, has heard this tape okay. because it's just yeah. so hysterical. It's hysterical. Absolutely. Now that you're mentioning it, I, I'm pretty sure that's what Seinfeld was referencing. I saw an interview with him. It was some sort of tape that he heard. Right. He said it was just filled with these things. Like in the rage, he would say these. Oh things yeah, that oh, just yeah. like he, totally. He went crazy. crazy. You know, he went crazy. crazy, and he and he was a perfectionist. And you know, if you're a musician, I. Uh, he was always getting, you know, newer kids coming out of the big music schools, uh, Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and uh, Eastman School up there and so on. And, uh, you know, there's great players all over the world. And mm-hmm. and, and these kids would, would would be monstrous players. I mean, forget about it. Right. I used to take my I used to take my jazz class at Pace over to Dizzy's on on Mondays uh, to see some of these college bands. They had won Grammys by the time I had taken wow. my students over there. That's how good these these people were. Anyway, that's what you know. That's what Buddy did, and he hired these people. and And no matter how great they were, they came away with from their auditions and rehearsals amazed because he could cue them with a a pair of sixteenth notes in the middle of a fifty bar tacit where nobody's playing anything, and and he could do this, and and they wouldn't believe it. But he but he knew all those parts. And he could do all of that. Forget about the solos. Forget about all the other drama. The the, music, the sheer musicianship was astounding. That's amazing. That's yeah. It makes me think that there's almost like an archetype um, of a, the the band leader. You know, you've got. I can think of a couple of examples. James Brown. Um, my father worked with this guy called Rob McConnell, and it's always oh, this, yeah. This I, 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 I produced Rob from. Canada. Oh yeah, okay. So I don't yeah. know, but you and my father may have crossed paths at some point because he was in that band on and off for thirty years. But anyway, it's it's a very it's a very high energy sort of. I it's I you mentioned perfectionist, right? So it's a certain kind of person who pushes himself so hard so when he has a group of people he it's like a dictatorship of of perfectionism in a certain sense right james brown is famous for this right he's a 
Yeah. Right. There's a there's a show. Uh, 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 Buddy's daughter Kathy did a sh- uh, gave uh, public television. I guess this was about three or four years ago. She gave them a show uh, which I had produced. Uh, at at Buddy had a, a club in New York called Buddy's Place. He had it for about eighteen months. Uh, wow. He just wanted to go through a jazz club, and his <laughs> his his uh, his his whole approach was the bartenders could not serve drinks while the band was playing. So you can imagine yeah, that was, that's uh, not going to work. Yeah. That's You're not going to stay in business very long. But but that but that was that was the kind of a purist he was. I mean, he was right. such a, a dedicated musician and jazz. And uh, again, this is me talking now. Jazz is certainly as important as any music in the West uh, and much more complex than most musics in the West, including classical. So when you get on that, when you get on that shtick, you're really in trouble because you leave the world behind. Right. Jazz, is, right. jazz is tough. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I, I've been in some of those jazz clubs before. I remember, you know, where um, people, you know, the band will be playing, and if if somebody's talking, the, uh, some of the other people listening will get very upset. You know, shut up. You know, like the, the, some jazz is very very complex, and it has a very very intense um, group of people who follow it. And so, if you're mixing that with a sort of a you know a market reality that you want to sell lots of drinks and people and people are going to get you know it's those two things are hard to kind of mesh together i think right and buddy rich you know you can't serve drinks when the band's playing i mean it's like you know it's like because you don't want to interrupt the music right well, well how yeah, does that kind of work as you said it was 18 months right so yeah you know, yeah right? And this is one of the reasons why uh, and this is another subject that we could go on for at least a, a, a day yeah. So many, so many musicians, so many Americans uh, have uh, since, especially since bebop uh, in the 40s, have gone to Europe, performed in Europe, live in Europe, uh, prefer to play in Europe and record in Europe. Mm. Uh, and and that's that's the reality. And if you spend enough time, which, as I said to you, I've spent a lot of time of my life in Europe. Things happen over there that are that are crazy uh years ago when winton took the job here at lincoln center uh he said nikki we're going to take the band over for a festival there was a million festivals in france and we were in lyon at the vienne festival right wow. playing it nice. playing in, in one of those roman old roman theaters with oh, wow. eight thousand 8, 8, people it was a big show tony bennett and diana crawl were the headliners uh a lot of great jazz and so on but 8,000 French people outdoors at night. You can hear Watching a pin drum. Jazz. Yeah. They're all silent listening, right? They don't. Yeah. They don't talk in Europe. Americans do. They don't. That's really interesting. Yeah. So some of that is, uh, so I'm just like, just to linger for a second on the why jazz does better in Europe. They're more serious about sort of the musicology rather than the entertainment might be one way to think about it, right? I think I think that's about as close as you can get to it, Jason, quite frankly. Right. So that's one thing. The other the other thing that maybe is a side point in the in the case of jazz, especially in you know, in past decades, was the racial aspect of it. I know a lot of black many of the musicians were black and they were more accepted in Europe. Um the, the racial and you know, the you know, the whole segregation thing that went on. Oscar Peterson, you know, the great Canadian pianist, when he left Montreal and he went and played with these bands, they had to go in the back doors and stuff, which I'm sure you may remember, right? This, So I wonder if that's a feature too for some of that. There's, you know? there's, so, much, there's so much irony connected with this. In the Clifford Brown book, 
I guess it's chapter seven. It's a kind of a funny chapter. He goes over there in 53 because uh, Quincy Jones uh, is a trumpet player to start off with and a, and a wonderful trumpet player. And Quincy is the biggest hustler in the history of music. <laughs> and he connected with Lionel Hampton, uh, convinced Hampton that he could do his very first European tour. Hampton wound up doing 5,000 European tours in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, uh, and and when, when we go over there, he said, you have to take some beboppers because that's what the, the, the new European writers and audiences want to hear. So Hampton said, OK, so he takes with him on this trip in 53 Clifford Brown, yeah. Quincy Jones, Art Farmer uh, and a bunch of other beboppers who are immortals, jazz right. legends. OK, and he takes with him. She signs on the night before Annie Ross to sing and do vocals. They start off, they go to, it's a four-month tour. They start off in Scandinavia. Annie gets on the stage, and there's some booze on the stage. And this one happened in Oslo and Sweden and a couple of other places. And the reason for the booze is because the Scandinavians don't believe that a white person could sing jazz back oh. in the 40s. <laughs> so when you do talk about irony. I mean, that, all, that's so hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, and Annie, Annie, Annie got stuck. Uh, she she helped me a lot. She was such a great singer. Annie got stuck because she was an English, and uh, and uh, uh, Hampton, Gladys Hampton, uh, Hampton's wife had a rule that they couldn't perform at night, and they wound up recording all night long uh, with Clifford Brown and, uh, and and Quincy had had set up recordings in all these different cities at night. They had to sneak out at night to record because Hampton wouldn't let them do it during the daytime. <laughs> So, so and that's how they got known, because by the time the tour finished and they came back to New York, there was stuff all about them in all the jazz magazines. Because they, the European, they've done the successful tour in Europe. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. You're yeah. talking about immortals. Totally. I mean, these are these are jazz immortals that were in this band. Totally. Totally. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. These it's funny. These these racial things to do with music are so strange. You know, it's. It, it seems like the in, in modern in the 21st century there is not much of a division anymore like there was throughout the 20th century in that regard you know um, I don't well know. when you get into that subject you're, we're in a lot of trouble yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're going just, forever yeah we'll just leave it there um, okay, so so the origins of New York comedy would definitely be um, these vaudeville and Eastern Europe. Oh yeah, we're well, going right? way back. Sure. Oh yeah, stand up uh, stand up comedy is is a good term to cover both the observationists and the old joke tellers. So stand up goes back there, and uh, uh, yeah, and it's basically a Jewish tradition here in the city itself, but mostly in the mountains, and that's where these guys perfected their their uh their craft yeah. Yeah. and may, maybe they're maybe they have a lot of commercial identity you know the big names from years ago but these people were craftsmen they knew exactly what to do they studied this they went crazy i mean <laughs> uh, it was amazing to watch them uh after after my shows at night when we were doing my shows we would all go to a, 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 a basically a little deli and hang out and talk about comedy and and you can imagine being at a table with uh, some of the names I've just mentioned yeah. and trying to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> and and, and I, I remember one night I started just briefly. I briefly alluded to uh, to the shtick, the actual farcical shtick 
in comedies by uh, Aristophanes. The great, and, and when I, as soon as I said this, the, the, the table hushed up. Tell us about this, Nick. Wow. Because they wanted to know just exactly what was going on. And, and yeah, and it's a quite, it's a long story, but it's a great story about how, you know, how some of this, uh, some of the features of early comedy begin back thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that first of all, it's really cool that they would stop and listen to you because they obviously recognized immediately you knew something they didn't that might be useful to them and also that might be interested in. It sounds like because you've studied all that, right? Bill Bill Sheft, uh, you may not know him, but Bill Sheft was hired day one by Letterman when Letterman went on his CBS show and stayed until the last day. Bill was with Letterman for twenty years plus, and Bill, a uh, good friend. Uh, great stand-up, uh, done a million different things. And Bill <laughs> was the last Latin major to graduate from Harvard as an undergraduate. Okay, they they, they gave up the department. <laughs> he was a Latin major, and 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 this sounds so silly to talk about this, but I I, I was the host for all of these shows, and after doing it for years, I, I'm not a funny person, but after after you basically begin to adopt and an ape some of the, the rhythms and the different kinds of illusions that these people develop as they do their things, I wound up, I wound up doing pretty good at it. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and they started, and the comics were laughing. Oh, that's you know great, saying? man. Congratulations. And, and, the reason, and the reason they were doing it is because my, my references were so specific that nobody could possibly get, you know, how hip, how, how hip it was. I introduced Bill one night by saying, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome uh, this next comedian who has been in comedy all of his life. Actually, uh, studied with the Latin masters, was with Vercingetorix when he defeated Julius Caesar. <laughs> and and from the back of the auditorium, you hear people who de- collapsing on the floor with laughter. The comics, of course, because they know all of these different illusions and things like that, because everybody's together in the clubs. <laughs> That reminds just just when you mentioned that it, it reminds me of that Mel Brooks routine of the thousand year old man. You must remember that, right? Uh, you know, Mel. It sounds like I'm name dropping, but at this advanced age, I'm 115 years old. At this advanced age, name uh, drop all you like. I mean, it's great. You know, all these I, I people, have, man. I, <laughs> yeah. I have a million stories. Uh, Mel and, and Annie had a house in Fire Island. And I was out there once. I had never been to Fire Island. I'm a Hamptons person. I was out there once. Uh, oh, God, I, when was it? I don't know, in the 80s. And everybody was there. And that's when they started to do this. Reiner was the straight man. And everybody fell on the floor, starting to laugh like crazy, and took it out onto the beach. And pretty soon, the whole beach was listening to, to these guys <laughs> do this nonsense. Amazing. Yeah. Well, there's something about, you're, you're mentioning a mix, mixing of highbrow and lowbrow together right which is very very hard to do right it, it sounds like you were able to mel brooks is sort of the <clears throat> archetypal genius at this and it sounds like you did a little bit of it too right well yeah because i did it for such a long time and and you know i hired when i hired these guys nobody knew who they were they were just starting out in the 70s right. nobody knew who jerry seinfeld or bill maher or larry david or they were all oh young goodness, god yeah nobody knew them and 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 one and one was more talented than the next. And yeah. there are stories. And again, there, there are just in comedy, there are star, stories we could go on for three days and, and you'd be laughing for three days. <laughs> Perfect example. Yeah. Here's the, here's the drill. 
it's Friday night. Uh, it, there's a comedy show at the Pace Westchester campus. Uh, four or five guys have been called. Uh, they were they ready. Everybody wanted to do the show. So no matter who, uh, no matter what it was, they would all cancel whatever showcases they had to to, to do my shows. Wow. Uh, limo limo in front of Catch a Rising Star. We all pile into the limo to go to Pace Westchester. Uh, now in the car is five or six comics, myself. And when I tell you this, that in the 25 years that we took this limo, we had to stop the limousine at least half a dozen times <laughs> to go to the bathroom because we were laughing so convulsively. And so, I mean, can you picture wow. this? How, how hard can anybody laugh? And, 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 and to this day, I owe it to all those guys. Forget about the money. Forget about the success, the productions. So it was cool. the laughter that was just beyond description. Well, being in a, in a limousine with Bill Maher and Jerry Seinfeld, or yeah. whatever, I mean, it's like, how could you not laugh? I mean, it, you know, it's, how could you not be side split? You know, you have to be. A and, real, and, real and, and, and they would constantly jump on one another's lines. And, and extend right. The, right. I mean, I, and it went on and on and on and on. It was just it was enormous. It was enormous. Belzer had a show one night. He said uh, he had a radio show one night. Uh, he signed a deal for, I don't know, two or three here in New York. I said, we're going to have a serious comedy show. I said, what are you talking about? He said, <laughs> well, I said, he said, we're going to have three or four comics plus Rick Newman and you. Rick will be the presenting the, you know, the point of view of being the uh, comedy owner and how that works. And you're the producer and you can get into the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. So now you're on the air. It's one o'clock in the morning here in New York. And you can imagine. Who, what kind of people listen to the radio at one o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yeah, insomniacs, and, and, drug addicts, right? That right, guy, right, you know, right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and 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 the mics go live, and the first caller comes, and he was, of course, a classic one of these idiots. And no sooner does he finish, like maybe a two or three sentences, than three or four comics jump on him from the stand, and they start, you know, they start making fun of him and making fun of one another, and and the entire the entire structure of the program collapses in about two minutes because everybody's right. laughing and screaming and telling jokes and making fun of these idiots and on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and pretty soon comics from all over town had heard about it and they were calling in wow. on the show. That's so cool. These are wow. things that happen. In this, and, and again, New York, New York, as David uh, Letterman well, said, what what you're saying makes me think that I mean going back to Seinfeld again we're talking a lot about him he he says there's like these stages of being a comedian it's like make your friends laugh is early on like just like joking around with people you know there's something very basic about comedy it's just being funny right just going back to the definition right when so just well, however you do that there's a deep craft of you know uh, you're gonna have all these we can talk about whatever like the 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 um, you know what the content is you can have very intelligent things you can have slapstick you can have the way you move your body there's all these ways it can be put together but at its base it's just there's there's something about making another person laugh so if you can make your friends laugh maybe you can make other people laugh and then maybe you can get someone to pay you to do that right is well, well you know I, we're talking about we're talking about these incredibly successful comics now uh, this is not something that you know you, they studied at the university. That's because right. Stand, That's st right. stand up. Stand there's up no stand up comedy uh, program. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. Yeah. But but when it comes to things like satire and historical comedy and stage comedy and timing 
and all sorts of stuff. These people would delve into Shakespeare and Sophocles yeah. and Euripides faster than you could say Jackie Robinson. I mean, that, that, they're, they're, they're they are students. Yeah. When I say students, yeah. they really, really study this. Jerry, to this day, uh, I'll probably see him next week. To this day, Jerry writes two or three days a week in his house out in East Tampa and spends the whole day. And he's not even performing that much. He right. just writes. Because right. that's what he does. Right. Yeah, th- this this mixing of um, highbrow with lowbrow. Another person, I wonder if you've ever crossed paths with him, who I'm a huge fan of, is uh, Canadian, in fact, Norm MacDonald. Uh, I know the name. I haven't. No, I haven't. He's, I haven't seen him perform. He he has. Well, he's he passed away a couple of years ago. He he was on Saturday Night Live and all that kind of stuff. And okay, and yeah, and he he had this way of um, because he was really into kind of the older kind of you know um, comics from that era we were talking about as well as so he has a way of doing the observational thing, but also doing very lowbrow stuff. It's very you know it's a very interesting mixture of. Uh, styles a bit like mel brooks in some senses and he always claimed to be like he would sort of act like an idiot that's kind of a strategy that a, a good oh, idiot God, could do is just pretend to be dumb or whatever right and you're actually really it's, smart you know it's 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 all strategic i i've taught seminars using try, to try to bring out the 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 evidentiary kinds of structures that happen in all sorts of different stage comedy i've had seminars and i'll put i'll put Brody dangerfield on the screen Wow. To show them what timing is like, oh, and yeah. and all of the weapons, the facial tics, the movements of his hand, everything is planned. Every yeah. conceivable yeah. thing, and and rehearse and work at this stuff. I belonged to a club in New York when I started working out back in the seventies. Uh, I started trying to take care of my body because my my dad had passed away of a heart attack. And it was the first of the of the of the uh, health clubs here in New York, the New York Health and Racket Club. And Rodney was a member and I got to know him. I, I would oh, see him wow. every other day and he would not say a word uh, to anybody at, at any time ever. He was a quiet, 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 really? guy, working <laughs> on this stuff constantly, constantly. That's amazing. Working. So he wasn't really like that. He wasn't. No, he was no. all completely affected. Put uh, on. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it, you know, in that sense, it's important to widen the lens and I, I've done that in my pieces, again, that are in arts and opinion, to talk now not just about, uh, you know, comedy as an art form, but to basically get into all of the commonalities that all of the art forms have. Yeah. And, and the kinds of disciplines and the kinds of, you know, sacrifices that have to be made, the learning experiences that go on, the context that go on, from painting a... a uh, you know, from painting a a, 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 a haystack if you're Monet uh, to, uh, you know, composing a quartet by Palestrina. It's all yeah. the same. It's creative stuff. And, it, it you know, it has its own discipline. It has its own thing. And the talented people are the ones who are successful as long as they can focus. Right, right. Yeah, comedy is, is an interesting one because you have to you have to have a lot of pre-existing knowledge about these kinds of things and you have to have dangerfield had developed this whole you know affected kind of a thing as you mentioned moving his body and all that kind of stuff but there's also there's a certain creativity necessary to comedy the kind of an openness to something this is the one of the things i wanted to get to towards the end so i'm glad we're getting there is 
this, you know, the, some of the greatest comedians are ones that push right up to the line of what's acceptable to say. And sometimes they go over it even, right? Because the, many of them are focusing on taboos in some senses, things you're not allowed, you're not supposed to say, right? And well, you know, the, if you can say the, something and someone laughs, it's involuntary, right? You can't control it, right? You'll see this in, in, with some some really good comedians these days where they'll make a joke and then people will laugh and then you'll see people sort of literally their faces will change to look more serious. Like, I shouldn't have laughed at that, right? <laughs> so that's against yeah, like, I, the rule I, or something, you know? This happens, well, again, because it's just so over the place. I mean, there's just so many different things and so many different facets to it. And it's not when we talk about comedy, it's one word, but the meanings attached to that word are, are, are infinitesimal. I mean, uh, there's just right. so many different kinds of things uh, that they did and, and that they they do and that and that you can study and you can really, you know, you can really, really get into some of the meaning. And I've I've I've, I've been part of writers uh, groups discussing producing, a, you know, some documentaries or even a movie, a couple of movies that I worked on with HBO. And some of these writing sessions, I mean, uh, thank God I never decided to do this for a living. I would, I would go out of my mind. I mean, they're really intense. They get crazy. Really, really. Oh yeah. Can you describe yeah. what you mean? Is it do they? Is they get angry and yell and fight? And stuff well, like it's or? exchanges. All of the. All, think of it this way: you're trying to be funny. You're trying to out uh, maneuver or out uh, out out. Out so there's a competitive it. aspect to it. Sure there is. Yeah, they're competing. If you ever get a chance, you should turn on YouTube and see what a session was like with the old Sid Caesar show. Wow. Now, I don't know if you know who that is. He's Sid very C famous. It's what, from the Johnny Carson era? No, way, way before that. Before that, okay, right. This is live television in the 50s, and this is this absolute maniac, lunatic, funny guy who... Uh, all of the comics, all of the comics who wrote for the show speak about him reverentially. Mm -hmm. And who were these comics? Neil Simon, Doc Simon, uh, Woody Allen, wow. Dick Cavett, uh, 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 obviously uh, Mel Brooks, uh, 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 Larry Gelbart. You named mm -hmm. a great comedy writer. They all worked together on that show. Amazing. So yeah, so that's that's interesting how the role also of competition in creativity, right? People yeah, they're they're, 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 compete, they're, they're right? yeah because uh, you know I'm funnier than you, or the <laughs> idea is to be funnier than <laughs> yeah. the next guy, and that's what they did. Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting. It's I, I, I'm not quite sure. Another couple of people I wanted to ask you about some famous New Yorkers. Um, there's a few I'm big fans of that. I don't know how well they fit in. They're not. They're more lower brow and lesser known. Gilbert Gottfried. I don't know. Good friend. Good Is friend. The friend of yours? Really? And, yeah, he's not with us anymore. And and one of the funniest people. I hired him right out of uh, maybe his first or second week at Catch because he was so funny and he was so hip. And it yeah, didn't make he, any difference. It didn't make he's, any difference. He's incredible. Why is he so funny? Is it he's he he's sort of like you mentioned Rodney Dangerfield having this act. I as I understand it, that his voice and squinting and all that was affected. He didn't really talk like that when he was absolutely not. Right? Absolutely, yeah. it's 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 all a structure and it's all a hook. I I like to use the word hook. Everybody got has to have a hook, even in jazz. Right. Uh, yeah. If, Something if, that if you want to be Right. Yeah, you got to yeah. know who's playing up on the stage. You say, well, okay, I know it's Oscar playing the piano. 
Right. And, and, right. and, and the fact that you, you know that is what makes Oscar a big success, you know, because he has a style that's recognizable. Yeah, so he had that style, and he also, um, he, he did imitations of people. He imitated Jerry Seinfeld, you must have seen that. And yes. it's, it's, it's funny, because the first time I heard that imitation, the Seinfeld, I was like, that doesn't sound like Seinfeld. But once I heard it a few times, it actually was more like Seinfeld than Seinfeld. There's like he kind of capture he captures great, you know, um, it's a, what's it called? Not to, when you imitate someone up, um, God, I'm really not good with words today. I'm a little bit sick, but you do an impression, yeah. right? Oh yeah, right, exactly. So a, a great impression is you're sort of extracting out the essence of what the, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of focusing on some of the extremities sort of of the way the person talks and what they talk yeah, about. Yeah, you're, you're right? exaggerating their, yeah, whatever their particular style or speaking, you exaggerate that and that makes it funny. That makes yeah. it funny. And that's what he he did with Seinfeld. And apparently he did it. You may know something about this. He he claims, and I'm, I'm sure it's true, that when, when Seinfeld was young, he, he would go and imitate him when he yeah. was doing his act. And, and he said nobody knew who Seinfeld was, but all the wait staff would come out and be laughing their heads off because they, they knew Seinfeld's act, apparently, you know. So I don't know did if you, Go did ahead. You, did, you, did you spend, uh, uh, we're telling tales out of school here now, uh, you're a, a Montreal native uh, in Toronto, Montreal. Did you uh, spend any time at all with Oscar Peterson growing up? No, I'm 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 younger too. Um, how, how old are you? Tell I'm, I'm 51. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. I do have some connection to my best friend's father is a well-known jazz musician called Sonny Greenwich. Uh, uh -huh. You may know uh, the yeah. jazz guitarist. Uh, he played with Miles Davis and stuff. He was a pretty big deal. He's a big deal in Canada, in the Canadian uh -huh. circles. But um, what about Oscar Peterson? I, I, I don't. Did you? Was there something? No, no, I, I, well, I produced Oscar a lot, and I, I've just mentioned you Canadians. I wrote a piece on Maynard Ferguson. I did that band many, many, many times. It nice. was, got to know Maynard quite well, and, and, and again, in the context of the Clifford Brown book, uh, Maynard recorded a little bit with Clifford in a couple of things years ago and was a big fan. Uh, so see how these things sort of intertwine? They do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, and with my crazy career, I mean, you know, I go from yeah. producing Joe to teach. So yeah, so they all kind of work uh, because they they're all what they're all part of the arts, I guess. Definitely. Did you have any connection the other the other because Gilbert Gottfried I, I love and, I, and it's amazing that you you knew him personally. There's another New York comedian also lesser known called Artie Lang. He's uh, he's you may I'm sure you know who he is at the very least, right? I know I know the name and Artie never worked for me, but uh, he basically came in and came came in and out of he didn't really stay with it as long as some of these other people did. I mean, he, he was very talented, but he was he, not, he had a lot of substance abuse issues and different yeah. And he, and abuse. he didn't showcase very much. So, uh, but he had a lot of talent. Yeah. Well, he's a lot of these guys you can find, they have sort of shows they've done like Godfrey, him and Gilbert Godfrey together. It's just, it's one of like, I mean, you want to talk about this thing of like, you know, having to, you know, pee in the, the, the you know, pee your pants laughing, you know, the two oh, them, when they get rolling, they kind of bounce off each other. And it's, it's also extremely politically incorrect. It's like these oh, sort of yeah. rever Hitler references and just sort of crazy sort of things that like, it's, if it was, you know, they're not racist, but they're making all these kind of racist jokes. And I wonder why 
it's so funny. Like, it's kind of like they're touching on these taboos. This is the last 10 years, like the last, you know, they would do stuff together here in Montreal, for example, they would do the comedy festival and they would, you know, and just basically they'd be up there talking on their podcasts with each other. Yeah. And, it's, 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 the kind of, it's the kind of thing that, uh, well, basically Colin starts a lot of this back in the sixties where he gets to be extremely controversial. And because he's so talented, uh, he can, uh, George Carlin, George, George Carlin. Carlin. Good, good. Yes. Right. Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, and because he, uh, he was so enormously talented and so many, so informed in so many areas, he could, you know, he could, he could dig into these areas and find uh, areas that subjects, which is one of the things that comics like to talk about. Uh, can I get into a taboo subject and make it funny? That's a challenge. Right. And, right. and a lot of them like to do that. And they, and many of them are very successful doing that, as you know. So George uh, Carlin is really, in your oh, view, the originator of oh, that particular oh, subgenre, right? Please, 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 please get your get your iPad together some night and and just go onto YouTube and see any one of. There's got to be a hundred sketches that he does on YouTube, one funnier than the next, and they all have this craftsmanship of of structure that I'm talking about in terms of controversy and pushing the envelope. It's wild. Right. Uh, he was a, he was a statesman. Is it? It's interesting because it, George Carlin, I think in particular, is known also for sort of a political slant, and and you wonder. Oh yeah, I've heard some of his routines, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You, you'll laugh hysterically. You'll yeah. la you, call me up or text me and say, "Hey, Nick, I just listened to. I'm not going to believe this is very, there's one. There's one on the, the one that you, uh, comes to mind immediately. He calls it on advertising and bullshit." <laughs> and if you if you look that up in 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 the YouTube, you'll and get that one up on put that one up. You'll 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 pee in your pants. Pardon my sweet sweet. But well, yeah, on advertise on advertising and bullshit, George Carlin. I think he did it when he was in the eighties or whatever. It's just it's 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 indescribably funny. Cool. I'm just making a note of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. George Carlin, I, I really think is an original. I think that he. He spawned the two things. One is the the political uh, aspect side, and also the sort of the um, the shock thing, right? The kind of you know, it's yeah, almost the, yeah. the opposite. Seinfeld wouldn't curse, and then you have Gilbert Gottfried, who you know every second word is the f word, and you know it's like crazy, just constant uh, curse words. And I hesitate because the, there's a lot of celebration of Seinfeld saying, "Oh, look, you know, because he, he doesn't curse, he does clean comedy," and and it is you could say, "Well, that's laudable," but. Look, as you said before, it's a craft, right? So the objective is to make people laugh. So if Godfrey can make me split my side gut laughing by swearing, then oh sure, you know, that works too, right? You know, yeah, and it, and it, and it has to be organic. It has to basically reflect upon what what voice kind of kind of a voice do you have? What kind of uh, you know physical presence do you? I mean, this all enters into it. And we've had discussions that are uh, absolutely cerebral in this area. Uh, with a bunch of comics that you would say that you would be saying, wait a second, how could they be sitting there talking about comedy for half an hour? And not, and not one person is laughing because they're getting into all of this stuff. There's a comic that nobody knows. Uh, I, I, I dare say you don't know who it is, who uh, is the funniest of all of the comics that I had ever encountered in my days. His name is Lenny Schultz. Lenny Schultz. And the, Lenny Schultz. And as I say, nobody knows who Lenny is. <laughs> just one of the, just one. He was on laughing, 
but th th what they did on Laffin in the 60s that represented one nanosecond of his talent. Right. Uh, right. This guy, this guy, uh, I, 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 it's impossible to talk about this guy because there's no way you can convey the, the, the depth and the breadth of the humor that he had. He was absolutely incredible. A, a classic clown uh, in, in ways that, uh, again, I can't even describe. And nobody knows who he is. Is, is there, because he's another name I've, I've written down here just to do with this sort of political comedy that this kind of pushing of the envelopes. There, there is a guy who has, shares a name with him who's fairly young in his 30s or early 40s called Andrew Schultz. I, I don't know. know him don't yet. Know and he's, there was a recent thing done a couple of year or two ago in a club, in a comedy club in New York where Andrew Schultz was there, a bunch of, and there were a bunch of other people who were not comedians, like a guy called Coleman Hughes, who's a podcaster and also a jazz musician. Very uh -huh. young. He's in his 20s and he studied, he went into philosophy at Columbia and um, he, he was a jazz trombonist. He still is, in fact. And he was up there What's talking and a guy called Glenn Lowry, who's a um, an economist, um, you know, well-known economist. And they were on the on the stage with Andrew Schultz and some others in a comedy club. And they were talking about some of these politically correct taboos and sort of riffing and making jokes on it. And their yeah, point yeah. was the, the one way to fight against some of this sort of, you know, this, um, I don't know how to use, I hate the word woke, you know, but that kind of like, oh, you can't yeah. say these words, you'll get canceled. One way to do it is to use comedy, right? Oh, sure. It's, it's oh, such absolutely. a great way. I mean, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. It's just as we move towards closing, any ideas? Uh, do you think that's going to save us from, <laughs> from ourselves? Or I don't know. Well, uh, great societies, and, and, and again, if you go back to classical societies, the ancient world, the Renaissance, etc., great societies have always been societies where there's been a great amount of artistic freedom and to say and to make fun of things. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time because most governments in the history of the West and so on are, are you know, they're, they're uh, governments that don't support freedom. But in free societies, starting with the English in the 17th century, yeah. uh, where, where there's journalistic comedy and, and uh, you know, satire, my God, the English satirists. Uh, Jonathan so Swift, that, right? People yeah, like that, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, th I think the connection between freedom, like because it is connected to freedom, and dictators hate comedy, like in the sense that we understand it, right? That they, absolutely. Like absolutely. a clowning comedy, maybe they could dig or whatever, but the kind of joke telling and pushing limits. They hate it. But they, they hate, hate it, it right? Yeah, Vladimir exactly. Putin doesn't want people telling jokes about him, right? Uh, in nineteen ninety four, in ninety four, uh, uh, I was a I became a director of the Comedy Works out in Denver. Uh, I did it for a couple of years. I had never been a company director before. Anyway, uh, they were trying to combine radio stations that we had out there with some that, that were in uh, Russia. So I went over to Russia and uh, did a lot of jazz because the wow. Russians were and they knew who I was and they knew more about Clifford Brown than. Most of the jazz musicians, it was just astounding. in Russia. Yeah. Wow, in Russia, cool. oh, that's a, yeah, yeah. Uh, west of the Urals in Russia, there's a music consciousness that's just incredible to describe. Anyway, you know, all of that's there, and and they knew a lot about what we're just talking about here. They mm -hmm. they 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 had studied it. They knew, uh, you know, there's depth here. And as far as jazz is concerned, they could understand instinctively and intuitively, uh, you know. 
the the things that Americans can't quite grasp, dissonant harmonies, mm. for instance. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to Europeans because they've been with it for 300 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Americans don't really get into stuff like that too easily. And I'm just using one, one example mm -hmm. uh, musically. Hey, <laughs> listen, guess, guess what? Uh, I, I, I do a show. This is funny. I do a show in Paris. I speak French. <laughs> oh, do you cool. speak French? Of course, fluently. Yeah. In fact, I of lived course. most of a lot of my life in French. Uh, you know, um, obviously, I'm a Quebecer, so right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, I do it maybe once every six weeks or whatever. My French is good enough to be able to do for about maybe a half an hour on the, oh, cool. uh, this Paris thing. <laughs> and of course, if you're a jazzer in France, you can run for president. So uh, <laughs> nice. That's the that's the way that works. Anyway, I got that coming up here now. No, oh, uh, cool. So listen, uh, uh, this has been fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm glad because uh, I, I, as I said, we're, uh, um, I appreciate you uh, sort of pushing me to close this. Uh, but I, I really appreciate ending on a positive note about freedom because um, it really, it really seems to me that for all the kind of problems we see around in in the United States or in Canada, you know, there's a lot in my country as well that seem to challenge the notion of freedom. There is still room for people to make light of it and joke about it, which tells us that. It you know we're not living in some sort of a totalitarian dictatorship. If comedians can still operate, then, that's right. Right, then that's, we still have some semblance of freedom. Right, I, I don't know. That's an excellent, excellent point. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, censorship is is equates itself with repressed governments. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, and and also it's in our time too. We've got very large conglomerations of you know things like Twitter or whatever. They're very they're not necessarily governments, but they have a lot of impact on on. What oh sure. Done, right. There's a big discussion there. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get into it now, but. The, the, the concept of, of repressing freedom is sort of it seems like that's the default for for how we operate. And the idea that we're free and we should be open and allow that, you know, that crazy, you know, like the ACLU allowing the, the Nazis to march in that town in Illinois. Right. I mean, that idea is counterintuitive to allow people to do uh, to, to say things that are very, very insulting. You have to allow those people to to operate in order for the comedian and then the guy to say the the political thing that might be against that might we not, might need to hear right. I don't know. Oh sure, makes sense. Aaron Sorkin, you know who that is. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, Aaron... television producer. Yeah, uh, writer producer. Uh, he 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 gives a speech to uh, 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 Michael Douglas in a movie called The American President. It's a fun movie. It's a one of those uh, family films. Anyway, his speech has to do with the fact that the president is being challenged on a matter of character. And, and, and he gives him a speech, which is amazing. He says, I'm paraphrasing. He says, America is really, really tough. You got to want it badly to be an yeah. American. You have to put up with somebody who hates your guts and is standing right next to you on television, calling <laughs> you the worst thing. In the and he goes on and on with his speech. If you ever get to see the film, you'll know what I'm saying. It's marvelous. And that's yeah, that's the, that's the price of freedom. That's right. That's right. So the price of freedom is, uh, yeah, is is this thing where we have to put up with. But the benefit is we get to hear, you know, then that voice that's saying something that maybe I really need to hear. Let me sure. know what it is. Or maybe it's some idea that I haven't thought of, you know, can come through to me or maybe it'll make me laugh or maybe, you know. Exactly. 
Cool. That's one okay. But, um, listen, that's I really did. appreciate you taking the time. I and also we, we went into a lot of music in this one, so I, I really get the feeling that we, we could do one on on music um, as well. I don't know if that. Let let, let, let me know. Yeah, my, my, the time constraints are the only thing, but I, yeah. I, can, I make I make time. But as we move along here, we'll get some, we'll have some fun together. I okay. Promise. Thanks again, Nick. Take you take care so much, Jason, yeah. and, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com 